Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And even though for some of us it feels like a Sunday, happily for everybody, it's a Monday. And we are back once again live from the Digital 410 studios and joining us, as always, Mr. Henry Sledge, Jeff Copsetta. And we're excited for tonight's guest coming on to promote his new book, The Long March Home, author, Mr. Marcus Brotherton. Gentlemen, how is everybody doing tonight? Doing fantastic. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. Now, just to give everybody a fair warning before Marcus comes on, uh, Jeff gave us the heads up. If his audio starts to drop out or if he vanishes completely, that's because he's looking down the barrel of a hailstorm right out his window. And so we're got to deal with his Texas internet tonight. But Marcus, sir, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, great to be here. And uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your uh, Monday night to come on and hang out with us. We're excited to uh, discuss your book. And we're always excited to see new content coming down the line in the World War II content realm. So uh, if you actually, I was thinking maybe for the uninitiated, before we get into your book, we give a brief background on... Uh, the Battle of Philippines and uh, the Bataan Death March. You know, we all know um, that most people who aren't as up to date on World War II as we do, they all think, okay, Pearl Harbor and Pearl Harbor was it. That's what we got us in the war as far as Japan goes. They attacked Pearl Harbor, sank some ships, and we got in a, got in a battle in the thick of things. But that wasn't exactly it because while Pearl Harbor attack was going on, the Japanese was initiating multiple attacks, multiple fronts, and um, along came the Philippines. So. Maybe we should start off with dipping our toe a little bit into the Battle of the Philippines and the uh, Bataan Death March, and then we'll get right into your book. Yeah, it's it's really key to to keep in mind. Um, you know, European theater gets a lot more attention, I would say, than the Pacific, and there's some reasons for that. Um, and and it's not we're not trying to pit the two theaters against one another. I think that's key as well. Sure. Uh, my my passion is I, I just want people to be aware uh, of the Pacific and what happened over there and. You know, a lot of a lot of good people uh, gave a whole lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. So, yeah, the the Philippines was a, a, an American protectorate at the time, so there were uh, many, uh, maybe twenty thousand troops over there, and then they were allied with the Filipino troops. So, about ten hours after Pearl Harbor uh, was attacked, the Philippines are attacked as well, and it's a fight. It's a fight, and uh, so the the troops fight back, but they are. Uh, outgunned and outmanned and most of the uh, the fleet has been destroyed at Pearl Harbor so they can't get resupplied they can't get uh, uh, you know reinforcements to come so they're they're kind of inched back and back and finally they find themselves with their backs against the sea and there's just nowhere to go so that's that's what uh, that's what leads to it all and I think one of the things you said outgunned is a very very important aspect of this um, people know from watch the Pacific and reading the books and studying that yes uh, when the marine corps got sent down to the pacific we were fighting with um you know a lot of world war one materials but they did have some new equipment whereas in the philippines they were you know literally just forces that were kind of pre-war especially our participation with the exception of lynn lease um you know they had antiquated weapons antiquated gear they were just kind of down there as you said as a protectorate they didn't have top of line you know firearms gear plethora of ammunition and so what they had kind of stationary is what they had when they were stuck fending themselves off for all this time 
Yeah, it was uh, when when the troops initially got over there. You know, it was it was before Pearl Harbor, and the um, I did a I did a nonfiction book uh, last year called Bright and Blinding Sun, and the atmosphere in the Philippines during that time was kind of a big party. Yeah, uh, you know, the the war it's 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 not going to come to us surely, and uh, and while we're here, you know, we can get a cheap beer and 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 have a good time. That was that was really. It was it was swell duty being sent to the Philippines. It was kind of like if, if you've been in the, the service for a while, they, they called them Asi- Asiatics or Asiatics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were often trying to get there uh, and uh, enjoy a, a grass skirt and, and, a, and, a, and a drink under the sun. That was the, the idea. And, and then a lot of these guys were just brand new. The, the, um, the book I did last year, uh, Brett and Blunning Sun, uh, you know, he was – Joe Johnson, he was only 14 when he enlisted. He uh, he fibbed about his age and kind of snuck under the radar. So he was he was just as green as, as could be. And a lot of the troops, they were maybe, you know, 18, 19, but they, uh, none of them had seen any action, of course. It's amazing how, how, how as time goes by, we hear more and more of these stories, you know, as more stories come to light, more, you know, letters, uh, paperwork get undug, we find case of Sidney Phillips he was there he turned 16 on Guadalcanal and or turned 18 on Guadalcanal and how many young men enlisted with the help of their parents and I often joke you know back in 1942 we had 15 16 17 year olds fighting to save our planet and nowadays I can't get a 16 year old to mow the grass without attitude so it's just amazing how far we've come along as far as responsibility and patriotism and willing to uh, do your part at such a young age Henry, how old was your dad when he was sent over there? Uh, Marcus, he enlisted at 19. You know, he wanted to enlist sooner, but my grandparents implored him to go to officer training. So he did the Georgia Tech officer training program, then flunked himself out. So he, when he actually enlisted and went in as an enlisted Marine, he was 19. Yeah, yeah. And, and then as Don said, you know, Sid went in at 17 and turned 18 on Guadalcanal. Yeah, I think back to what I was doing at 18 or 19, and uh, I mean, what, what were you guys doing at 18 or 19? I, mean, <laughs> I grew up in the 90s, and I was trained not to talk about those things on video and or recording, so I, uh, I'll refrain from what I was doing when I was 18 in this aspect. It's, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, kind of the weight of the world is on your shoulders at that age. Absolutely. Right. Jeff, you joined, well, how old were you when you joined up the service? I was 17, but I turned 18 two weeks before basic and turned 21 uh, in Baghdad. And so, I mean, you could definitely speak to being that age. You know, here I am joking around talking about can't get six-year-olds in the grass, but here you are 17 already. I'm sure you by 15, 16, you were already looking into, you know, obviously that seed probably sprouts earlier than you just wake up one day at 17 and a half say, hmm. Got nothing to do tomorrow. I'll go join the service. <laughs> I think I knew I was going to join the service when I was about five. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it, um, when you're young, dumb, and you know, it, it, there's a reason we send young men to war because uh, men our age would say no, heck no. Uh, but it's it's those young um, men that have to become or boys that mm-hmm. have to become men that, that really define their generation based on what they did that they probably would not do uh at an older age or 
after they had children or things like that. So I think that's always an interesting dynamic when we talk about young people at war. Um, it, it's it's a whole different dynamic for those younger people as opposed to uh, you know the the twenty year veteran you know sergeant majors or colonels that they're waging war in a much different way. Yeah. Uh, than the guys on the front lines or in the mortar platoons. So Jeff, you were still in high school then when you enlisted. I was, I was, I, I signed my contract right before I was a senior in high school and, and went over and, and, uh, you know, we, we talk about that a lot on here, uh, was in, uh, basic when September 11th happened. So I have a pretty good idea of that peacetime to wartime, mm-hmm. you know, transition overnight. So I'm really, really looking forward to, to more of your story here because man, you know, just, just earlier today. Well, if 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 our listeners just Google what happened on December seventh, right? It's gonna be Pearl Harbor. Go to history.com, go to libraryofcongress.com. It's gonna say the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, or you might even get a oh well, December seventh was also interesting because that's the date that America declared war on Austria-Hungary in 1917. But it's so much more than that, and it's just, it's so enlightening to me to know that you've uh, put together this work for people to enjoy the rest of the story you know it's just pearl harbor was one of those puzzle pieces that really i think people need to understand and really appreciate america's involvement and what drew us in and what really happened i it, it boggles my mind that the stand at wake or female nurses in corregidor being among the first pow's how do those things get lost in the sauce behind the battleship arizona Right. And of course, not to take away from that tragedy, but it, it was a series of tragedies. And, and you have yeah, to understand there, it to know the full story. There, there are various theories on what was actually in in the mind's eye of Imperial Japan. Right. Um, I think it's safe to say it was a coordinated attack to take all of the Pacific Rim and they were heading for Australia. That was that was the big prize. And, and then once they had all that. Nothing was going to stop them. You know, kind of Jeff's question, why does one aspect of the war seem to get so much light shined onto it opposed to other? And this is me just totally talking out my my rear end here because it just popped in my head. With the exception of Wake Island, because I actually had a film crew there, I think a lot of that has to do with the amount of video footage that was readily available to television show producers in the 70s and 80s when they you know, before the History Channel came out, and people who were putting together documentaries, a lot of the stuff was still, you know, classified. You couldn't just go down there and get all this military video footage. And so I think a lot of the stuff that we know nowadays, at least in pop culture, people who don't read books like we do, I mean, we can see the ones behind Jeff, but just your everyday regular Joe Schmoes in the world, I think they get most of their history from what was on TV. And what was on TV was produced based around the footage that people can acquire to put on TV. I mean, how many times have you watched a, a show about a particular conflict, Marine Corps, for example, or I was actually watching something getting up to speed on on uh, Batan Death March in the Battle of the Philippines, and for a split second, I could have sworn, like, they cut to a clip, black and white clip, 
of Vietnam because it looked like the barrel they was a barrel of an M16. It's like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't belong. So I think, and you'll see it from time to time where they're talking about Marine Corps and all of a sudden you'll see a, a soldier in army and from walking by, it's like, oh, the guy editing the video doesn't know the difference. But I wonder if a lot of what we know, especially growing up in the 70s and 80s, is because of what was available to television produce, production crews. It's just a hypothesis. That's a great question, yeah. I know um, from having interviewed veterans in both theaters. Uh, you know, I was I, I was talking to Shifty Powers before he passed. Probably probably half a dozen times we got to uh, we got to talk uh, before could, cancer so, got him. I'm so jealous. I'd love him to fly on the wall just listen to any one of his stories. He, he was amazing, and 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 he would call me up, which was the crazy thing. Like, who am I? Uh, but he would call me up and just say, yeah, you know, I had a good day. And, and he, he just, I think he, he, he was, he was housebound at the end and, and the cancer was really getting to him and he had time on his hands. He would listen to books on tape. And, uh, if he had a really good day, he would go on his back porch and shoot his M1 at targets he had there, uh, in his backyard, which was just amazing. But, uh, you know, Shifty, the, the big thing he was known for was his empathy. And, and there's that classic scene in, in Band of Brothers where he talks about how, uh, you know, this man, he was just doing his job. This, this man on, on the other side, this, this enemy. Uh, but under different circumstances, we would have been good friends. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of the vets anyway in the European theater that I've talked to, certainly there were gritty parts of, of that battle, absolutely, of that war, that side of the war. But there was a sense of, uh, okay, the war's over, and now let's just get back to our jobs and get back to our homes and start our families and buy that refrigerator and get on with life. In contrast to the veterans that I've talked to and interviewed who have fought in the Pacific, um, R.V. Bergen, uh, to name a name, and, and he went on the record with this, just saying, man, he would never own a Japanese car. There was still a, a sense of... Um, uh, I'm not going to forgive. There was too much that went down. Uh, and, and I don't trust them today. I mean, that was RV's big stance, uh, right or wrong. But it was, a, it was a grittier, more difficult, more, I don't know. I, and I struggle with the adjectives there because, you know, what happened in, 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 in Europe was horrific stuff. But, but the guys in the Pacific, that's my observation anyway. When they, when they came back, I could name half a dozen guys who took that same stance as RV that um, bygones weren't bygones. It was it was grittier, tougher stuff. I think barbaric would be a good adjective. Yeah, you know it's it's not funny, but it's it strikes a memory when you say that. I grew up. I was born in '78. Karate Kid was out. You know, at the time there was a lot of you know. Asian culture that was seeping into pop culture and all that. I remember I went to the Richwood Flea Market in Kentucky as a young kid and watching all these karate movies and all that. I saw this really cool bandana. had a red circle on it and some scribbles on it, and I wanted it, and I bought it, and I wore it in my grandmother's house. Uh, my grandfather did grave registration in Europe, and my grandmother was upset was a um, light adjective to use. Uh, she wanted that bandana nowhere in her house because she couldn't prove what was written on it because she didn't understand the language. And I didn't understand at the time why. My mom was like, hey, it's different times. Times are different. You know, it's just from the flea market. He likes it. Karate Kid, all that stuff. And, you know, all years, years later, like you were just saying, you know, even though my grandfather fought in Europe, I'm sure she had family members, uh, 
boys from the town who went through school who died in the Pacific. And even in 1984, she still kind of had that same same feeling of don't quite trust it. And I definitely saw that through my dad's eyes. And, and you know, I remember in the 80s because I loved Karate Kid and that, you know, when the Hachimakis were real popular there for you could go in any mall and see stuff like that. And, you know, my dad didn't like it. I mean, he was not shy about expressing his opinion on it. Mm. And, and I'm sure a lot had to do with the fanaticism on the, you know, the side of the Japanese soldiers and the things they saw, the the mutilation of bodies and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that goes along with, with war. So when you're um, coming to research and maybe plan to roll out your latest novel, um, how did you settle or come to the story of the three gentlemen that you highlight in the book, The Long March Home? Um, how did this particular project come to your light, and how did you settle on it and proceed to uh, go down this path? So it all started in real life with Lieutenant Buck Compton. He, uh, <laughs> he started it all, which is kind of a funny story, but uh, I, did, I did Buck's book back in, it was like 06, 07, uh, Call of Duty was called. And Buck was, uh, I mean, he, he was really my, my teacher, my mentor, my professor. Uh, I came in pretty dumb to the whole subject. And he, um, he, he gave me a, just a, a great education. And, and the cool thing was it continued even after his book was, was finished. Um, Buck was 85 when, when I helped him write his memoirs. And he was still in pretty good health, still traveling all over the country to various shows and he was still speaking. And so his daughter, um, Tracy, Tracy Compton, who's just a, just a great person and a great friend of mine. She called me up after his book came out and said, Hey, you know, my dad could use some help, um, navigating airports. Uh, would you like to travel with my dad? That's a you nice know, assignment. One of these questions that just comes along, you know, once in a lifetime. I'm like, absolutely. So I ended up doing, uh, three trips with Buck and, um, he would he he had a, a really great memory, particularly for things that happened, uh, you know, in in the war years and, and surrounding that. Sometimes he, he couldn't remember what happened yesterday, but uh, you know th that's me as well today. So um, we'd be sitting in an airport just waiting for a plane, and he would have just um, minuscule detail uh, of things that he could recall from uh, what happened in you know forty two and forty three. So we're, we're sitting in an airport one day and he's talking about Bastogne, you know, and I'm just sort of all ears and, and he's, you know, it's just this winter hell and guys are, you know, no boots and, and Joe Lesniewski has wrapped his feet in burlap bags very literally. And that's how he's gone to combat and there's not enough food and they're eating uh, this bean soup with maggots in it and, and just, you know, tough, tough time. Belgium's coldest winter in 30 years. So I'm just sitting there going, man, Buck, wow, wow. This must have been so hard for you to be in Bastogne. And when I say that, Buck stops and he kind of looks at me and he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, we had it rough. And then he says, but we didn't have it as rough as the guys in the Pacific. They had it really rough. So that statement stays with me for years. And I'm kind of going, what, what does he mean by that? And uh, so I, I read uh, Donald Knox's um, Death March Oral History Project when when the guys are about 65, so they're, they're they're really fresh there, and that was my introduction to the subject. 
Uh, and then Adam Makos did, and I worked on Voice of, of the Pacific together, where we interviewed all the guys from K35. And uh, that, that really brought me face to face with just many of these men. And, um, but, but I still, I was looking for that story surrounding the Bataan Death March. Uh, I got a chance to interview some, some vets who had been there, but their, you know, their story just wouldn't work out for a whole book. And so it, I began to dream of this, of this book where, um, where I could take readers into the heart of the action. Like I love oral history. I've done oral history projects. Um, but kind of the limitation of oral history is that you, you often get kind of the treetop view, you know, as as opposed to a, like a really good uh, movie or a really good narrative, uh, nonfiction or or a novel, which really just plunges you deep into the heart of the action. So that's that's what I really began to dream of, and uh, yeah, I, I began to work on this on this book um, that eventually became Long March Home. I worked on it for seven years. It was a back burner passion project. Uh, it was unfunded at the start. So I was just working on it in, in sort of pieces, um, little by little. Got a manuscript done. This was um, five, six years ago. And I sent it out to some early readers just to get their perspective. And the feedback that came uh, back to me was, yeah, it was good. It, it was really good, but it wasn't great not great yet. And I wanted it to be great. I wanted it to move from that sort of that B plus level to an A plus level. Cause I, I you know, the, the guys are worth it, right? I, I wanted to shine the spotlight on, on what they had done and I really wanted to elevate it. So I called my agent, we talked it through and he's like, you know, here's the deal. <clears throat> you, you're, you're writing fiction in this case, based on history. Um, more women buy fiction than men. And this book and the subject matter is so gritty. Um, talk to a talk to a female novelist. Get her on board. Get her take. And and how how can you make this sort of um, palatable for everybody? And, and palatable is the, is the wrong word, but but you want a story that's just blood and guts to not be blood and guts all the time. Sure. So. Um, I called up my friend Tosca Lee and, and I had read a number of her books and she had uh, endorsed a book for me a number of years earlier. So we were both kind of familiar with each other's writing styles and, and whatnot. And I said, uh, how'd you like to write a book with me about the Bataan Death March? And this was her statement. She goes, what? What is the Bataan Death March? And, 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 and it was, it was the, the, this started the conversation where I explained a little bit of it to her and then I kind of sent her some, some nonfiction books to read. And she was aghast. She was like, exactly what we're talking about here today. She's like, why have I never heard about this <clears throat> ever? What's the deal? Why are we not teaching this in schools? Uh, you know, it's such a, such a, a, a big piece of our history and a key piece of our history and, and Tosca's like, uh, and I've never heard about it. So that lit a fire underneath her to go, okay, we have to educate people about this this period of, uh, of history. If, if I don't know about it, and, and she was in her late 40s at the time, um, yes, we have to we have to start talking about it. So, so um, uh, she took my existing manuscript. She worked on it for a couple of years because she was in the midst of a different project at the time. Uh, she finally got it to a stage where she was happy with it and she knew her readership would be, would be happy with it. 
and then we started working on it back and forth just to get just to get it all into one voice. Uh, and finally, finally, this book is out there, and um, the reviews are coming back. Uh, we've got three distinct starred reviews from from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Library Journal. Extremely hard to get. Um, we feel strongly that that this book has become an A plus piece. That we that we are uh, truly honoring the vets who are there, and and it was our best work uh, to get out there. And so the book is based around three friends from Mobile, Alabama, and their, you know, trip of enlisting into the service and then going over to the Philippines and then surviving the, the death march, the ships, internment in Japan, basically the whole gambit. And like you say, you, you kind of, and that's kind of a hard task to ask someone who's not familiar with a particular subject, hey, here's a subject. Um, maybe some of the reasons it's not covered in wide swath is because of the brutality and it's... Yes, it's war, but it's really a truly a study on how humans treat other humans in the worst possible environment and condition of war. And how do you take such a rough, raw subject matter and make it, as you said, palatable, but not take away the severity and the importance of that brutality? Because it's that brutality that makes that story so important to tell. And how do you do that in a way where you maintain its importance and the severity of it yeah yeah it's that's a question we talked about for probably a, a year i mean just just trying to ask that question and 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 the challenge is if 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 you just have in a story brutal 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 then then you become desensitized to it as a reader as a viewer even and so one of the things we did was we um, we created a, a, a separate storyline that happens on the home front. So that's three best friends and then the girl they, they leave behind back home. Uh, and, and, and we, we weave this this other story in uh, to the death march accounts. And so you'll, you'll read a bit about the death march and then you'll go back to Alabama for a while and, and then go back to the death march. And the effect it creates is like you can take it, like you can take the grit and then you get a little respite, and then you can take some more of the grit. And, uh, you know, we, we are hearing a little bit of criticism that it's still a little bit too gritty. I mean, yeah, and, and, and we tried to pare it back enough just to to make it so you could get into it. Um, so I think it works. And, and, the, and, and the, 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 the real critics, you know, the, the critics who do it for a living, they're, they're saying it does work. Um, it, it, it's some bloody stuff, absolutely. Well, maybe there's a little bit of benefit that this book came out in a time where the number one core audience to true crime stories and true crime novels are women. And so they kind of got a, a little bit of a foundation of reading gritty raw material, you know, and so it may, be, it may lend it a little bit, you know, of ease of maintaining one's um, ability to make it through the harder pages to get back to the, the flashbacks. And that's probably kind of nice too, is it's almost, you know, as you were saying, you you read through the gritty stuff and then here, okay, we're going to take two chapters to go back and kind of fresh your palate a little bit. And then, you know, let your heart rate lower down and kind of get to know these guys on a personal level. And that probably building that personality and the character development and that personal level 
makes it even harder to imagine these people going through such horrible events to them, opposed to just three random people that, here's three names that we really don't know thrown in the situation. But when you build that character behind it, and then they can imagine those people going through that, it's got to make it that much more relatable and heartfelt. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point right there. When I, in my original manuscript, I started the book on the march itself. And, and then Tosca came along and said exactly what you said. It's like, now we got to get to know these guys a little bit better. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking campaign. I'm thinking let's dive into the action. And she's like, no, it'll be actually more powerful if, if we know who these guys are. And, and even the, the, the Bataan Death March, I mean, just to understand what, what that was all about. So uh, April 1942, uh, the Allied troops surrender on the Philippines. Now, they keep fighting for another month on, on Corregidor, right, the island that's, that's right off the coast there. But for, for the troops who are on the Bataan Peninsula in, in the Philippines, their, uh, their combat days, so to speak, are over. They, they are ordered to lay down their weapons and surrender. Uh, and there's some good reasons for it. I mean, uh, it, it, was, it was hopefully, hopefully, to prevent more bloodshed, and that's probably another another uh, another whole discussion right there. Uh, but anyway, so so the troops are rounded up on the peninsula because they're not all fighting together; they're kind of fighting in sort of spread out pockets. And so Imperial Japan they they round up the Allied troops, and then they begin to march them up the peninsula to these POW camps. For the guys on the bottom of the peninsula, it's about 66, mi 66 miles, <clears throat> and it takes almost a week. If you're farther north, you're not marching as far, but you're still marching, you know, three, four, five days. Um, but the the brutality on the march itself is that, and, and even to put yourself in the eyes of the enemy, they're going, holy cow, this huge army has just surrendered because there's another probably uh, 50, 60,000 Filipino troops mm -hmm. they're surrendering as well. And suddenly we've got to deal with them. And, and our superiors are telling us, show no mercy uh, and, and don't, don't share your food. And, and in, in that mindset, if you surrendered, you were considered a coward and and there was no respect for troops who surrendered that's what i so want to put a, this that's what i want to put a fine point on for our audience who aren't familiar with the mindset of imperial japan you know being asked to put down your weapons you think okay cool they're happy we're no longer no you're now you're a coward and now we got to deal with you and to surrender to a military that frowns upon surrendering because you're a coward and dishonor your people they're not going to treat you nicely because okay, you're no longer shooting us. Now we're going to now they you're dealing with somebody who has a complete lack of respect for you. It's a perfect storm. It is the worst of the worst. And so these allied troops as they're being marched up to these POW camps, uh there are indiscriminate um beheadings, beatings. If a man falls out of line, he's stabbed with the end of his bayonet. Um, there, there are uh, convoys of Imperial Japanese soldiers who are driving up ne uh, uh, next to these marching soldiers, and and they would they would stick a um, a rifle butt out of out of the end of the truck and just sort of take a take a a whack at a soldier's head as he's walking. It's like playing baseball with with mailbox. uh, mailboxes. 
uh, just horrific yeah. stuff. Um, some men were, were, were mowed down by rifle fire. Some men were, were mowed down by, by tanks, uh, you know, as, as they, as they went alongside of the troops. Uh, if, if you stop to, and, and the men, they're emaciated and, and many of them are sick. If you got out of line to take a crap by the side of the road, you were shot. I mean, this is tough, tough stuff. And, and person after person is, is falling and dying, and it's just a horrible time, for sure. And, oh, by the way, they're not marching 100 kilometers in a nice pair of Brooks or New Balance shoes. They cut on, you know, old ragged boondockers with socks that are all, you know, blisters on their feet and dry conditions. And just, if you did come across water and you quote-unquote smuggled it you can easily be beheaded for it i mean so even if you're trying to do your best to maintain your health so you can do what you're being asked to do then you're punished for that too and so it's yeah. truly a no-win situation for these guys the, the rules were changing uh the rules were being made up on the spot uh, even if you're trying to sort of keep the rules that your your new captors were giving you those rules were hard to figure out. And there's a language issue. There's a language barrier. You name it. It is it is tough stuff. And even though the history and the category is titled the Bataan Death March, the march in and of itself is just the beginning of the nightmare. Once they got to the camp, you know, which was the which was an old army base, the living conditions there were horrible. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's any number of camps, uh, but one of the main ones is Camp O'Donnell, which is uh, you, you do hear about Camp O'Donnell every once in a while, and uh, conditions there are pretty lousy. A couple thousand guys are being crammed in the, into this uh, this facility, and um, the prisoners are given various work details um, by their captors, and sometimes the men are outside uh, gathering firewood. Um, sometimes they're growing crops, although most of the food is being given uh, to Imperial Japan and not the prisoners themselves. Uh, some of the guys are put on burial detail because the, the deaths in the camp uh, are, are just growing so much. And so uh, they are carting uh, dead bodies outside of the camp every day and, and burying them uh, just by the hundreds. Uh, just some crazy stuff that's happening in the camps. How many... You know, you you just alluded to the fact, Marcus, that there there Camp O'Donnell was not the only camp. Do you know how many there were? I forget the exact count. Yeah, um, and and that's a good point, uh, Henry, because some camps, uh, and, and so I, I say this carefully, some camps were better than others. Now right. they're all bad. I think sure. we have to get that. Um, but yeah, some some camps, um, like Billabid Prison, was actually one of the better places. Uh, in the heart of the city there. And uh, Bilibid was considered better because they had some some better medical facilities there. Mm -hmm. There were some American doctors and medics that were still allowed to practice. And uh, they didn't have very many, very much supplies, but they were still sort of given, like if a man was sick at Bilibid, he might get better. Mm -hmm. um, uh one of the fields uh, was um, boy, and the name is just escaping me. It's it's where it's where the the uh, international airport sits today. Um, ah, the name's going to come to me at like three in the morning. It'll be like, why didn't I say Nichols Nichols Field? Okay, so Nichols Field. 
Nichols Field was um, probably a step beyond Camp O'Donnell in terms of bad situations. Mm-hmm. So at Nichols, um, they were they were tasked with constructing an airstrip, and they were constructing this airstrip by hand. So it's, it's this big uh, hill of dirt and rocks and gravel, and the prisoners are ordered to, they're given shovels. I mean, this is not backhoe stuff. They're, they're given, you know, railway cars and picks and shovels and told to move this hill by hand. Mm. So this is kind of dawn to uh, Dawn to dusk, break, backbreaking work, and and um, the the Japanese want to construct this airstrip sort of as quickly as possible so they can you know land bigger planes and whatnot, and so the the supervisors they're getting a lot of um, uh, pressure from their supervisors to to hurry things up, and uh, if a man was working at Nichols Field, yeah, he didn't last very long. So yeah, there were better some better camps than others, although they're all bad. Well, I think when it comes down to the level of better versus bad, probably had a lot to do with the amount of people crammed into it. Um, I know the prison you spoke of earlier, one of the bigger problems they had was lack of latrine facilities. And the video I was watching earlier talking about they had so many people in there, some of them were forced to live right by the the trenches that they use for latrines and the waste was so bad that flies just engulfed the entire camp. And so if you're one of these guys who are stuck sleeping near the quote unquote latrine, you're just covered in flies as well because of the amount of, you know, infestation just from not having a simple place way to dispose of human waste. And so yeah. the quote unquote less bad of your camp may just depend on, Hey, we got a thousand less guys here to deal with, you know, that sort of thing. So, and then if you survived that, then you got put on a ship and sent to Japan. And so it's like one after the other. It's like, okay, I survived this horror. I survived this horror. Maybe things are going to get better. No, it's going to continue to get worse for you. And so they had these transport ships that were basically turned into troop carriers out of old cargo ships. And they're just crammed in there. And you had to hope you didn't get sunk by allied submarines and survive the the horrible situations on their ships yeah sometimes when people hear this story um they will stop at this place and and become really skeptical and and they'll say there's no way that that uh, all this stuff Mm -hmm. happened to the same people no way um but they forget that actually it happened over years and yes, things went from bad to worse to horrible to whatever happens after horrible. Uh, it, it was just crazy the amount of uh, atrocities that were sort of heaped on the same amount of people. So yeah, you've been working as a POW a number of years. You're, you're sick, you're starved, and now you get put on the ship and sent to the mainland of Japan where you got to go work in a mine or a factory for Imperial Japan. Now, this is toward the end of the war, but the guys don't know it yet, right? Uh, nobody knows it yet, um, but particularly the guys on the ground because they don't they don't get any news. And so uh, they're, they're put on these ships and they're crammed in these ships. And many of these ships have just been used to transport horses and cattle and whatnot. And now they're being used to transport men. So there's still manure in the bottom of these things and there's no ventilation and there's maybe a bucket of water that's lowered down, you know, twice a day and maybe a bucket of rice. 
we're talking for like 2,000 guys. 2,000 guys with compromised immune systems who are already, I mean, it's one thing. dysentery. It's one thing to take a healthy person right off the battlefield and put them in that situation. But as you stated before, guys who've already experienced these horrible things and who've already probably lost 30, 40 pounds, they've compromised immune systems, they're already starving, they're already dehydrated. And then to be put in those situations, it's just, Every one of them. Every day they would they would pass bodies up out of the hole just to get these corpses out of their out of their you know living conditions, and and they're they're crammed in so tightly that they can't even they can't even sit on the floor. Uh, They're they're sort of belly to back, and just such hard places. And then and then the 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 tragedy of this is that. Um, if, if you're transporting prisoners and you're um, abiding by the Geneva Convention, you have to uh, announce uh, to the enemy that you're transporting prisoners. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Japan doesn't abide by that. Right. And so here come these American planes and they spot Japanese ships and they're bombing the Japanese ships. And, and it's, it's, you know, friendly fire. Uh, not knowing that there are Allied troops in deep in the holes of these sh- ships. Yeah, because they don't even so much as put a red cross on them, let alone a POW symbol or anything of that nature. Yeah. And, Is uh, it known how many of those ships were sunk? Uh, it, yeah, I couldn't tell you offhand, but there's... It was and more than one. It was a lot, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the living conditions on those ships were so bad that pretty much history as a whole refers to them as hell ships because that's what they were living hell. And so if anyone listening is wanting to do some research on some of the questions we've asked or, you know, haven't heard of these particular atrocities, uh, just Google hell ships of world war two and you'll find a lot of content on, on the horrors that went on on these boats. And, um, so when it came to researching and cause obviously as you stated before, you got fictional characters in a historical environment. Um, when it comes to researching something like the Bataan Death March, what were some of the key places and uh, key source materials you used to make sure that the historical aspects of this story were historically correct? Yeah. I'm going to turn my camera just slightly so you can see. I mean, just even on the top of my bookshelf there, that's um, two, two stacks of three rows deep. That's my Pacific collection at the moment. Nice. Uh, so it, 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 you want to read as much as you can um, and, and then talk to anybody. I, in the last um, three months, I've talked to two veterans, and they're, they, they were 101 and 103. So there is this imperative that while we still have this generation with us, I want to talk to as many as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah. Whatever you can read on the subject and, and whatever you can, uh, and whoever you can talk to. You know, and that's another thing. When we think of survivors of war, whether it's Vietnam, World War II, modern day wars, we often think of the men who suffer physical wounds and obviously emotional wounds as well. But perfect example, the, the men who survived the, this triathlon of horrors the physical ailments that they had to live with the rest of their lives that weren't visual. You know, it's not, oh, he has a missing leg, missing arm. It's the 
diseases or illnesses that came later in life due to their compromised immune systems that they had for all those years and and you know things that have come to them you know passing away at an early age because of you know their body trying to survive all those years after the war what they had to experience i'm sure so many of them probably passed away at a quote-unquote earlier age because of the hardship that their body went through to keep them alive and their willpower that they had to stay alive through all of that. Yeah. So Joe, Joe Johnson, the vet uh, who I mentioned earlier, uh, when he came back from, from the Philippines, um, I have some pictures of him uh, right when he got back to the States. Now he came back in pretty rough shape. He had a leg wound that was, that was needing a lot of attention. He, He was in the hospitals for about a year after he came home. Um, but what's, what's um, I don't know, sort of darkly telling is, it, are the pictures of him when he, when he first comes back, because he's been, after, after being released, he's been eating sort of as much as he can every day. And, and in these pictures, he's swollen up and, and, he, and he, he looks like he's probably, like he's 20 years older than he truly is because his body just can't handle this sort of massive influx of calories. And uh, eventually he does sort of even out. Um, But that first year back uh, out of captivity is just so rough on his system. He was six foot four and he had gone down to 110, 109 pounds, I think was his lowest. So uh, yeah. That like strikes home for me because I'm six foot five. And my walking around weight is about 227. So to think of being in the hundreds, I can only imagine that that is tremendously skinny. Yeah. It's absurdly, absurdly skinny. And Marcus, I'm curious. Um, you know, we've, I think we've pounded the brutality of this subject to a, a pretty good level here. I'm just curious without giving too much away because of course we want everybody to read your book the long march home but did you find in your research was there ever this little twinkle of empathy found somewhere in some possibility with the japanese was there ever any kind of a human element that you came across that this we we know that this is brutal we, we you know even a novice historian who may have just heard of the Bataan death march thinks oh it's a bunch of guys that suffered you know to, we don't even have to go into a very deep level, I think, to get an understanding of how somewhat how terrible this is. But was there ever this surprise factor in your research? Like, wow, this is even more surprising than how brutal it was. Did you, did you ever come across anything like that? Yeah, that's great, Jeff. And, and thanks for bringing us back there. Um, certainly in the Long March Home, uh, we write a lot about the friendship between the three guys and what went on between them and just, yeah, there's some funny moments and and sometimes just uh, laughter brings you out. When I was talking to, or when I was researching Joe Johnson as well and, and his sense of humor um, buoyed him along so many places. Um, and, and there, there were the, the occasional uh, compassionate Japanese guard, like, like we can't sort of um, paint every individual within this system as as all bad because they weren't uh there there were compassionate guards and there were guards who who liked to uh you know walk along whistling my blue heaven because that's a detail that that was true to life 
And um, in Joe Johnson's case, uh, um, he was beaten once and, and just about dead. And this guard came to him and said, you know, look, I've got a boy at home. I've got a son at home who's just about your age. And, and I know how much I want to get home so I can see him. So imagine your parents now because they want you to get home so they can see you again. And, and this guard, this Japanese guard really encourages Joe along and just says, you know, get up. Um, if, if you show your captors, me included, that you're strong and you can survive this beating, everybody's going to respect you more and it's actually going to go better for you. And, and, and this, this kind of the strange compassion of the guard gets Joe up and keeps him going. That's outstanding. Yeah, I was um, thinking too, and this may be a subject for a, a whole other episode, but in talking with the veterans that you have and the research you've done, has the topic ever come up about the um, the lack of uh, Japanese that came uh, were charged with any kind of war crime? When we think about, of course, with the Germans and the atrocities in Europe, um, has that ever been kind of one of those uh you know source subjects with the guys that did survive this to get that final retribution to see these guys kind of really pay has that ever come up in in any of your findings as well yeah it's uh, it's controversial for sure i mean be, because some of the guys some of the, some of the japanese soldiers were put through the war crimes trials um <clears throat> exactly what japan admits to that these days is also controversial uh, and, and we've got that um, an author's note uh, in, in the end of the Long March Home that talks about how um, there have been some apologies and there have been some retractions. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough to say what sticks for sure. Yeah, it's I little... was going to ask that too. On that same note of the acknowledgement on the part of the Japanese, you know, if there's been much on that. But sorry, Don, didn't mean no, to I, no. That's a good point. I was going to go a little off subject, but kind of unsub subject with the the things that Japan may rightfully so want to not acknowledge versus the stuff that they just want to ignore. And I think it's probably ten years ago now. I think somewhere in California, they someone put together a don't know if monuments the proper word but it was a statue to make people aware of quote unquote the capture and use of comfort women by the japanese and when that monument was put out japan was really up in arms about hey uh something something we're proud about but you know this organization in california because of the amount of you know japanese immigrants who lived in california at the time you know they wanted this known that you know these i'm sorry you know the Chinese population in uh, California, they wanted it known what was done with their their women during the war. And that's just another one of those things that Japan doesn't really want to come clean about. And so they were really up in arms about this monument, this thing that came out about the, the comfort women that were enslaved yeah. into the sex trade. And yeah, so, I remember that when they came out. And, and comfort women, it's, it is a subject that does it needs to be talked about. It's, it's difficult as well. Um, because there are any number of other countries who were, when they were imprisoned, um, groups of their women were, were put into this program, for want of a better word, and, and Chinese and Vietnamese and uh, Thailand and, and you name it. 
and 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 the comfort women they were they were uh, it, it was it was servitude a sex slave um, mostly for the Japanese soldiers uh, a bit for their civilian population as well um, and horrific stuff um, not no age requirements I mean we're talking kids as young as 12 yeah. maybe younger who, who quite knows and and sometimes uh, it wasn't necessarily even prostitution although that was part of it it was uh, like they would they would sort of crazy stories like they would put a a naked comfort woman at at the head of a column of soldiers if that column was really tired if they've been marching for um, days on end, we're talking Japanese imperial Jap Japanese soldiers, and and they would think that okay, if if a naked woman is ahead of them, then these guys are going to march a little bit stronger. They're going to keep going. Crazy stuff like that, and and it would often be through the through the um, through the territory of, of uh, a captured country. So we go capture Thailand. We're, we're going to take a. a, a a woman from Thailand and sort of put her at the head of this group of soldiers. And it's, it's her countrymen who are seeing her. So you go, wow, the incredible embarrassment, mm. shame for this poor woman. And, and it's certainly not her fault. She didn't choose this, but this was the type of degradation that was happening. And, and on a level that was just widespread. Which made very well go back to the aforementioned feeling that uh, veterans and people of that generation had of maybe not wanting to turn the other cheek as we did with the Germans. And I, one of the things I wanted to point out when you talked about the Shifty Powers quote, I think out of all the pre-episode interview quotes on Band of Brothers with the exception of I didn't, you know, I wasn't a hero, I served with heroes, I think that Shifty Powers you know, if me and this fellow were somewhere else at a different time, we very well could have been friends. It's probably one of the most powerful quotes to come out of that series on Band of Brothers. Like I said, second only to that, I wasn't a hero, but I served with a company of them. And, you know, that quote has always stuck out to, I think, anybody who's seen that series. And while yeah, it's, it, it raises a fascinating question, like, um, how can... Um, benevolent people be turned into people who who commit these atrocities. Uh, I think I think Germany has definitely struggled with that and and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, here are people who have this Judeo-Christian background, and and yet really difficult things are happening. You know, we all have Japanese friends today. Japan is is a country just like us. These are people just like us, and yet. What is it within this worldview that kind of shapes these soldiers that they are following orders, and yet they, man, they 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 follow those orders and then they go three steps uh, farther. Um, when you study the 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 rape of of Nanking, and here's a whole city where swaths of people uh, are are being butchered and and women are being raped, and it's just um, let's wipe out this city. And it's kind of this this um, this frenzy that happens. Um, uh, the, the fall of uh, or, or, uh, of Manila and and the, and the capture of Manila as as the Allied troops are coming in in forty five, 
and 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 the Japanese soldiers are leaving. Uh, they are leaving. They're not leaving quietly. Uh, they are leaving, slaughtering and raping people in their way. It's it's just horrific times. And so it raises the question: Absolutely, what's going on with these people? What is happening uh, that people can fall into that state of frenzy and 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 perpetuate such horrors? I'm not sure there's a great answer to that. No, and it's amazing what 90 years can change. You know, we look back in history, say, "Well, that was 90 years ago. That was the the um, indoctrination or the the belief system of of a people of a time." And as I often say, the older I get, the younger old gets. And you know, 90 years ago wasn't a hell of a long time. And it's amazing how much things have changed. It's also not in the mentality state, but when you look at the state of the war and allies versus the access and who was teaming up with who and who had a more shared belief system, it's really not the same, but it's an interesting look on how things have changed. You go back and talk to a, one of these vets who fought in Japan, uh, in the Pacific against Japan, and particularly Henry's father, who after the battle went and went to China to help, you know, police things up and try to, you know, make sure things got turned back to relative normal, how, how that table has flipped, how we, you know, our allies with China and Japan being our enemy to now, nowadays we're more <laughs> bad fellows with Japan. And now we're looking at China, like, uh, what's going on over there? It's like how quickly that changed in 90 years. And so it's just, it's just weird how things just change with so little time. Well, I mean, prime example, um, Don, what kind of vehicle do you drive? Hey, to the victors go to the spoils. I have a German Volkswagen and I got a Toyota, so. <laughs> you know, I got, can, I, can I? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I've got, I've got four Dodges, a Ford, and a GMC. I, see, All American. I, I've been prepared for that. That <laughs> Someone to point that out, but yes, to the victor goes the spoils. I grew up as a Chevy, as a Kentucky boy and Ohio guy. I my family had nothing but Chevys until about 2004 when every Chevy we bought fell through the floor. And like, literally I carry went to Volkswagen. I went to Tacoma. My dad, after years, he had an F three fifty. he had Chevys and he has a Tacoma. My brother has Tacomas. It's like, we're not picking sides. We just want a vehicle that lasts and runs when we turn in. I mean, when it came to cars, you know, we talk about what Bergen said about not having a Japanese car. I mean, my father had very strong feelings about mm -hmm. the Japanese post-World War II, and yet he also looked at things very pragmatically and said it's a consumer it's a consumer item, and they build a better vehicle than we do. And we had Japanese cars. We had some American ones, too, that <laughs> didn't do too well. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, we did Eugene both sides. There was driving a Toyota. Huh? There was Eugene Sledge driving a Toyota. It, it was an Nissan. <laughs> <laughs> Long as it wasn't a, uh, well, was it Mitsubishi who made the engines for the Zeros? Well, yeah, they built the Zeros. Yeah, long, uh, long as it wasn't it a Mitsubishi. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's the same motor in, that's... In, uh, in this global climate, what what exactly is a Japanese car? What yeah. is exactly an American car? You know, I Toyota is made in in Atlanta, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Volkswagens in Tennessee, and that's a very good point. Um, go back to the early two thousands. I acquired the 1996 Pontiac Firebird that my parents bought when I was in high school and the air conditioning unit went out 
So I took it down to place, bought all AC Delco, AC components, dropped a ton of money, drove three miles. It blew up. Took it back. Guy pulled the box out of the trash can and said, AC Delco, made in Malaysia as part of the GM global unit. And he actually had to go out of his way to find a third-party company that actually made that same condenser in the United States. And so I tell people, yeah, American cars are assembled in America, but they're manufactured overseas, just like all the rest sure. of them, because we don't make things here anymore. I had a thought earlier, Marcus, when you were, you were talking about Shifty Power calling you and your conversation with Buck Compton and then and Bergie. Has it occurred to you, you're kind of like the equivalent of a sports reporter of the golden age of baseball, at least to guys like me and Jeff and Henry. You're, you're rolling off all these names that we would be envious just to talk to any one of them. And you're like, yeah, Shifty Powers calling me all. I was talking about content. I was talking to Bergie. It's like, you're like a guy who, you know, Ran the sports page during Babe Ruth's time and rolling off all these names. Just has that has that even occurred to you? How I don't, lucky's not luck. It's hard work, but how beneficial or uh, I don't know the adjective I'm looking for. But just to have the ability to say you've talked to all these people and had friendships with them. That's got to be so. Uh, I don't know. It's got to kind of be like the the feather in your cap of your career, really especially as a historian. I don't don't take it lightly. That's for sure. It's, um, and, and Buck Compton started it all for me. Um, you know, after, after I did Buck's book, there were a number of Buck's friends who wanted to write their, their memoirs, uh, from easy company. And I talked to my agent and he was like, yeah, you know, the industry is not going to support a book from each man in the company. So I called up Herb Seurth, who at, at the time he was the president of the easy company association. I'm in a visa company association and, uh, and together Herb and I were like, why don't we just do this compilation memoir and, and we get, you know, any of the guys who are still around to give their stories. And so that led to the book called we who are alive and remain untold stories from the, from the band of brothers, 20 yeah, of, of the still living men from easy company. And, um, talking with those men, it was, it was Buck, uh, who, who vouched for me. Because they didn't, they didn't come in just kind of going, we're going to hand you uh, our stories. Uh, now, I, I, I cut them in for a piece of the book, and I, I want readers to know that as well. The, the money didn't flow to me solely at all. I mean, it, it, it went to them and their families. Um, but they, they, they often came in skeptical. Uh, I think by that point, they had been um, a lot, kind, of the, kind of the celebrity limelight had been on them rightly so and um but they were they were going okay this guy's going to do a book about us and why and what and so um yeah a number of them called up buck and said who is this kid and and buck's all right he, he did my book and he'll do you well and uh and it was buck's key that unlocked the door and, and then once I'd done that book, and I'd been to a number of the um, the reunions by then, I was I was meeting all of the uh, adult age children of Easy Company, and I did the book uh, We Are uh, um, a Company of Heroes, and and that was just there were there were so many great stories that weren't getting told from the deceased men, but they had, the stories had been passed down. And these adult age children were going, yeah, yeah, man, but my dad had this great story. And so we, we wrote a book uh, about them. And that led to Shifty's War. And I had met Adam Akos along the way. And and he had he had worked for about two years to um, to win the trust of, of the vets who had fought in, in the Pacific. 
uh, for the miniseries, and that led to Voices of the Pacific. And then, you know, once my name was out there, the ball kind of got rolling, and and uh, yeah, a lot of veterans. It I, I don't take this lightly, I, I, and I guess I'm I'm trying to 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 point out, um, like like I'm 54 now, and um, I, I I think sometimes it'll be even 20 years from now, it'll kind of be like, I don't know. Okay. You knew the guys who fought in the civil war, uh, kind of that thing. It's like, I'm, I'm a living link, uh, like Henry, you're a living link to, to the guys who are there. And the older that we get, that generation is going to be pretty much all gone. And, and, and then we're going to be the link. And so that's a responsibility I don't take lightly. And it's, very, it's also a very important role to play in society because as long as somebody is around who had verbal communication and a relationship with these guys, it makes younger kids realize, oh, that wasn't that long ago. As long as you know, there's someone who says, yeah, well, Shifty Powers used to call me on the phone all the time. I mean, oh, so it wasn't, you know, because I think that's one of the biggest problems with history. Until you get to our age, you know, when you're in your, obviously a kid, teenager, even your 20s, maybe early 30s, you don't realize how small of a timeline it truly is. It's like my grandmother lived to be, you know, in her late 80s. 80 years ago, wasn't that long ago. Well, either was the 80 years before that. <laughs> either was, you know, Carrie and I, we recently unplugged from the cable and we got, um, we're streamed like everybody else, and we started watching the Yellowstone Precursor 1883. And there's mm -hmm. scenes of... Civil War, and it's like that, w and we're trying to do the timeline to okay, where's that particular person to Kevin Costner's character in the modern day? It's like, well, that's 1883. We know they have the series 1923, which would be World War One. Kevin Costner is my parents' age, a little bit older. My mom's dad fought in Civil War, and so you go through the timeline. Oh, so it would have been his great great grandfather, which wasn't that long ago. And and when you start looking at it through the realms and the age of your family members, you realize how young our country is, and how not long ago this stuff truly was. You know, we're yeah, not that's well put. That that was what I was trying to explain. Uh, yeah, it's it, and it's it's important. Um, like I, several of the vets I've talked to, they were eyewitness eyewitnesses to the Holocaust like they were concentration camp liberators mm -hmm. and and they were there opening the gates letting the guys out and and they were telling me what they saw and smelled and felt and they were there and you know we get these Holocaust Holocaust deniers, deniers today it's just so infuriating it's like come on man well, I kind of pointed this out a while back on my other podcast when we had this trend of taking down Civil War statues. It's like, you don't have to agree with the statue. You can feel free to put up a plaque next to it, pointing out with an arrow, talking about this guy's an asshole. But if we start taking them down 30 years from now, we already have Holocaust deniers. If we take down all the evidence, are we going to have Civil War deniers at some point? I mean, just because there's a monument doesn't mean it's a celebration. We can't say, well, let's go to Germany and enjoy the celebration of the Auschwitz Museum. No, it's a – some particular monuments are a reminder of bad things that happened. As we all used to say when we were kids, 
learn from history or you're bound to repeat it. Well, now let's erase history so we can, you know, pretend it never happened so we don't have to acknowledge horrible things that happened. And that in and of itself is a tragedy and we got to stop it. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I've been, I've been to Texas and, and you got to think like I grew up in Canada, so it's, it's just a different system up there. And uh, going to, to some of these places in Texas where there are Civil War uh, monuments um, that, that um, how to say this, talk fondly of the Confederacy, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's surprising to see that. Uh, and yet you're raising a great question. Should we take down those monuments or should we keep them up, but just tell both sides of the story? I live in Florida. I live in a county called Lee County. Uh, we've had people literally cut the head off of the General Lee statue down here. And we've had, you know, the people who were native down here. I'm from Ohio. So, you know, I'm from up north and it's it's a weird dichotomy. And, you know, you have the people... You see bumper stickers down here with the the flag saying it's all about history, not hate, and and it's like I get that. But growing up in a guy growing up from Ohio, I've seen how other people appropriate that flag for different meanings, and so that's one of the things that you have to kind of balance being a historian. It's like, you know, there are both sides of the story. There's people suggesting we rename our county. There's people fighting against it. When I worked in radio, um, the area I live in, we have the Ford Museum, the Edison Museum, and Firestone because all three of them had vacation homes down here. And we have the Edison Bridge, and then there's a bridge right next to it that someone, you know, we have the Edison Mall, and Edison plays a huge role down here. And someone threw the idea of, well, well, let's name the other bridge the Ford Bridge. And at the time, I worked on a number one afternoon show on a 100,000-watt radio uh, tower, and the guys knew my history, and they said, well, what do you think about naming it after Edison? And I said, I don't think we should name a bridge after a guy who put out anti-Semitic newspapers at his dealerships. Four days later, newspaper uh, newspaper um, reporter talking to the people over at the Holocaust Museum and, the, you know, the, the, the Jewish population. And they said the same thing. Hey, we shouldn't. And so they never named that bridge. And so it just... It's tricky because there's two sides of all history and how you play that where it's, once again, using the phrase we used earlier, palatable to both sides. It's, it's a tricky one to play. It is. I mean, because, because every, every army that goes to war has a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And to be able to think empathetically about the enemy's position, that is difficult but probably necessary stuff. I mean, on a popular level, um, Clint Eastwood, right? Yep. Uh, he, he did the movie. It was, uh, uh, he told the same story from two different perspectives in two different movies. It was like, what, Flags of Our Fathers was one? And Letters from Iwo Jima. Yeah, Letters from Iwo Jima. There you go. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and that's a fascinating, um, to put yourself in the shoes of the Japanese soldier going, okay, they had reasons for doing what they did. Hard stuff necessary to get our heads around and that is a nice thing we're seeing in some of the newer movies oh i can't remember what it was um oh it was what was the movie that came out not too long ago about the um sea battle i completely midway midway that's one of the things that jeff henry and i said the nice thing about midway is they didn't give the japanese the boogeyman complex they showed it from the scenes that they're shown from the japanese side they were showing cool collective 
guys trying to do their job in this conflict, and then they switched to the ally side. You know, it was, you know, they didn't really give it the boogeyman conflicts of here's our enemy, they're horrible people. It was a more honest, and I think we're kind of starting to see that more in a lot of these conflict shows and movies is they're kind of trying to give at least a more honest, you know, depending on who the villain is. But we're starting to see that a little bit more, I think, in more movies and shows now. Which is more fair to their ancestors who were watching this stuff, too. Absolutely. So I think uh, that we always do this little segment near the end of the show called What You're Reading, and it's always more fun when we have authors on here. So I'm going to start with uh, Henry today. Henry, what you reading? I am about 300 pages into Ian Toll's third volume of uh, his Pacific War Trilogy, War in the Western Pacific. So enjoying that very much. Jeff, what you reading? Uh, the book is called uh, Wind in the Wires. It is a memoir of a British World War One fighter pilot. <clears throat> that's got to be – that's uh, a change-up, but uh, we know you love aviation, but talking about not that long ago, there was a tremendous amount of change in technology between World War One aviation and World War II. You're probably It's probably a nice little change of pace as far as the topic goes to go back that – far back as far as technology goes compared to what you read about in World War II. Yeah, well, you know, I've said it on here before, to truly understand uh, the Second World War, I think we need to understand what happened before it yeah. and why some of these decisions were made. And it's interesting you bring up the technology because this man's memoir, uh, the, the really the main theme behind it is how, man, how much things changed when he was shot down in 1915. And when he finally makes it back to getting in the cockpit once again, in 1918 he said it was like a time warp had happened where everything looked the same but everybody he knew was dead and the aircraft had advanced so incredibly that he thought he had been advanced to the future in just and two that, short years in those th in those three years so to think about it's not just spads and newports and triplanes that were circling the skies for the first world war to see what the british were flying in these 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 kites these box kites really you know uh, the, these longhorns and, and shorthorns are what they were called advancing to the be2s and then to come back and then yeah now you've got a, a spad 13 we see them as mostly all rudimentary aircraft i think from a world war ii perspective um but not the case for the guys that were there so it's interesting if, if that much technology elapsed in those three years yeah that war then it really, I think, should give us an appreciation of the interwar years and then, of course, what we did in the Second World War. So I think it's, yeah, it's a little off subject for me, but not that far off subject. Marcus, we're going to change up a little bit for you, but first off, what you're reading and then what you're working on. <laughs> so I'll, I'll answer the second question first there. I'm, I'm doing a book right now biography with a Hollywood actor who actually can't name yet because of a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but he's a big supporter of, of the USO. Uh, oh, okay. So that, that interests me and uh, just shining the spotlight on the troops. So I've been reading books surrounding his life story right now, which um, uh, is, is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But the, the book that I always recommend that I've just started, uh, I just pulled out to, to go through for the third time is Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Uh, she sets the standard for just excellent writing and uh, she's a terrific person all around. And 
Louis Zamperini's story. I mean, you just can't go wrong with it. It's it's uh, it's just a well-told story and a, and a phenomenal uh, heroic story all the way through. Okay, two weird things. As we were talking about the death march in your book earlier, um, as I said, <clears throat> I worked in radio about six or seven years ago, and at the time, Unbroken came out, and I got a whole stack of promotion posters. And so when I was talking about that, I'm glancing over to my right where I actually have one the Unbroken poster pinned up on my wall here so to have you bring that book up and the fact is um i got into reading late in life um I was in my mid to late 20s because i grew up learning disability and reading was a struggle for me but the second book in my ever-expanding world war ii book collection was we are who are alive and remain the book you spoke about so to have you have you on the show when your book was the second book in my ever-growing collection voices pacific i'm staring at right now as well um, it's very cool, but I am reading. I, I finished up, um, I finished up the book that I was reading and I, I've actually gone over to the European theater. I'm reading four hours of fury. Have anybody read that? I have not. It's the untold no. story of the world war II's largest airborne invasion and the final push into Nazi Germany. It's about the uh, 17th and the, um, oh, the 17th, the seventh British air, um, airborne. And then the 17th. Yeah, I believe it's the 17th, but it, it's really cool because it talks about actually how the Airborne came to be and how, since they didn't have a history, how their uniform standards came to be. And it goes into, you know, the drop over the Rhine and, and all the missions that it actually took. I'm only a couple of chapters into it, but it's it's a really good book and I'm enjoying it. And, um, and there's a lot about glider riders. We've talked about here my kind of, my interest in the glider riders and how there's not a whole lot in pop culture per se about, you know, that aspect of the airborne, the guys who, you know, when the first started, they didn't get special uniforms, no special patches. No, they didn't get any danger pay. They're basically just infantry putting gliders. And as time went by, they, you know, all that changed and, and the whole glider rider aspect of it is, is cool as well. And so I'm, I'm into that book and we're going to see where that takes me and uh, we'll go on down the line. Well, Don, now I'm curious because the book you were reading, I, if I'm not mistaken, was I'm staying with my boys. Right? Yes, I've been I've been dying to ask you. Okay, how you how did you think it ended? I thought, well, I'll let you answer. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it ended pretty well. I will say it definitely gave more detail about his contribution to that particular campaign as far as how long he was on the island and you know setting up guys trying to set up that line of perimeter going back for help whereas when you watch the pacific you know it's like oh, he landed made it halfway up the hill got hit with a mortar and dead whereas when you read the book you realize oh no he he, he landed and was heading out to his objective setting up guys or getting overran he went back to <coughs> more guys to fill the line and so there's definitely more history to you know that part of you know up and to the point where he died but you know i i enjoyed the book it was good and i definitely learned a lot about John Basler. And I will say it, it is difficult and I did get over it. But when I first started reading it, knowing that he died and knowing that he probably didn't transcribe a whole lot of his thoughts and feelings on, you know, his time in the service and then how the book is portrayed in a first person, you know, it, once I got past that, I, I enjoyed the book. It, it really shined a lot more on, you know, him as a person and, and, um, going from the army and his time boxing and then the USO tours. And I enjoyed how it took him a while, but,
But when he realized the in, insane amount, I mean, when you're doing these USO tours and you're pulling in fourteen billion with a B in nineteen forty three, and he he's like, okay, okay, maybe I'm not so much of a donkey in a you know in a circus. I'm actually doing good for the guys back home. I'm actually you know for the guys out and on the line. I'm actually helping. We're raising real money here. We're not just you know putting a a nice shine on the war effort. It that was nice to see, and then go into detail about that as well. Well, I think it proves to show that every now and then historical fiction, when done well, yeah. can be a powerful, powerful tool. Uh, looking forward to reading your book, uh, Marcus. This is really exciting. We really appreciate uh, you know you taking that time. You and of course Miss Lee to to give it your your all your A plus because uh, you as an author and and Don and myself and Henry as these kind of next generation that have, you know, had the torch passed to us to help keep history alive, whether it's through podcasting, reenacting, sharing our passion and what we're reading and being able to hear, you know, your story and, and being able to appreciate your work. I think it, it shows we're all on the same page and we do know that we are a link to, to keep it going. And as we get older, to be cognizant of the fact that as these guys are going, the younger people are now looking to us so whatever facet we use to keep it alive i think um we should always be like you sir and, and give it that a plus effort yeah thanks so thanks for what you guys are doing as well i mean yeah i mean here, here's a question like i mean off the top of your head what is one thing that you would want today's generations to know about world war ii i'll i'll answer that it that it's um not so unlike any war where young people were forged into um, this sort of, like you said, uh, taking these benevolent people to do very malicious things sometimes because the war was fought for a reason and to not forget that reason and to not forget those that didn't come home. You know, the worst thing about having Jeff on the show, he always wraps the show up with these great pornant things that I just want to go out on. I just want to hit the end cue, but then I don't get to say, hey, Marcus, please put out your plugs. And so I was like, he always has these great just final words. You just want to hit the end of the show and just go off in the sunset on these beautifully spoken things. But I got to say, hey, Marcus, what's your plugs? Let's get, you know, where can people find you? And so um, so while we're at it, where can people find you? Where can they track down your new book and uh, keep up with what you got coming down in the future? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is called The Long March Home. And it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or ask for it at a, at a bookstore near you. Or go to my website, marcusbrotherton.com, and it's got some links there. I think for me, you know, with World War II, it, it creates a tremendous sense of gratefulness for the life I've been given today, for the life that I've created for myself, my family. Uh, the fact that other people uh, fought and bled and died for my freedom and, and to gain a, a, a true sense of that, well, that it just it makes me want to do something purposeful with my life. I think it it makes me um, complain less as well. <laughs> I was at a car auction a while ago, and it was winter, and I was uh, standing right outside with a bunch of guys at this auction, kind of stamping my feet to keep warm, and everybody was kind of grumbling and grousing, myself included. And then it you know, takes me back to uh, the guys I've talked to have been in Bastogne. It's like, you know, if, if, if the guys can survive Bastogne, surely I can survive a car auction in the cold. 
I think anybody who reads as much as we do and invests as much time as we have on this topic have all had that same thought. There's like, I'm an IT guy. It's like, you know, if I could hop in a time machine, go back to 42, go to the front lines, they'd be like, look, Mac, I don't know what an active directory domain controller is and what the problem with the DHCP film, but if you want to switch place, get in this fox, I'll all happily <laughs> hop in that time machine and go deal with your problems <laughs> and you can live through mine. And, you know, it's all perspective. And anytime I'm having a bad day or a rough go at it, I, I had that same thought. It could be worse. I could be here doing this or I could have been there in time doing that. Or even modern day, I could be over, you know, overseas right now dealing with what's going on. So um, definitely. Oh, boy, I don't want to go to the gym today. Well, it could be marching up Curry. <laughs> Curry and jump boots back in 43 in Tacoga, Georgia. Or you can go to, you know, 30 minutes at the gym. Which one do you want to do? And so... I think uh, I think for a lot of his, uh, people in the history, we use that as a way to to stop bitching about our daily problems, and I think it's a good thing. And as always, if you guys want to get more information on our guests, please head over to wtspworldwar2.com. You'll find the page with Marcus and uh, all the links to his upcoming projects and his where you can find his book and all that. A real quick note update: um, I think last episode we did the drawing for the uh, first Patreon prize pick with the Warbird Coffee. The What's the Scuttlebutt mug, which you won't see because it's green. It's going to blend into my background. Um, some stickers and the autographed M blocks. Um, anytime you roll out a new thing like uh, prize giveaways, the interns kind of fail, fail their jobs. And the first person we chose, actually, uh, their account was not active. So we promptly repicked, and uh, we already know this on Patreon, but we want to get a shout-out. The winner of the Warbirds Coffee is Alexander Richard Marshall. So, sir, go check your email on Patreon. I sent you a message to verify that your address is correct so we can get that coffee out to you, and we will pick prize winner number two at the end of this month. And we want to thank everybody for your continued support. And if you want to help what we do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's WWII. WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, sign up and subscribe, or just simply head over to YouTube and subscribe and watch some of our content. You can help us there. And for myself, Jeff, Henry, and Marcus, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>